another OUinsider.com podcast. I'm RJ Young. I'm joined by OUI staff writer Colin Kennedy. Colin, what's going on, man? Man, we got football, baby. We got a lot to talk about today. I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a fun show because we got a fun weekend coming up. Yeah, man, it feels like the first full weekend of football, even as it's not, right? Like, I was actually thinking about this earlier in the week. We are going to have a week seven where a top five team, at least one, has not played football, and others will have played as many as six games. And that's even before we begin to talk about losing more than 30 games, I believe now. No, no, we played 29, and we've lost like 18 like have been postponed or canceled. And yet, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for this SEC-only schedule. I'm really excited for this Big 12 schedule. And I'm really excited to see whether or not Alex Grinch's defense shows up against Kansas State. I know that's wild to talk about, but the last time that Alex Grinch's defense played against Kansas State, they gave up 48 points to Skylar Thompson and the Wildcats. And now that the Wildcats are traveling to Norman following a bye week for Oklahoma and obviously a bye week for Kansas State. I want to see if they can put up another goose egg, man. Like I, I wrote a bit about this earlier in the week. This is going to be the first opportunity they really have since 2015 to put together back-to-back shutouts. And the last time that they did that at Oklahoma was 2009. Now, interestingly enough, that season had three shutouts and that team went eight and five. Like I just... So I'm trying to put that together, right? I'm trying to make this all make sense. So what is your understanding of how Alex Grinch's defense looks as it prepares for Skylar Thompson, Deuce Vaughn, Harry Trotter, Briley Moore, and the like? Yeah, man, I'm fascinated, fascinated by this matchup because obviously you mentioned that Alex Grinch didn't do so hot last time he faced the Wildcats. Now, that being said, I mean, that was an incredible atmosphere. of the well-thought-out game plan. But, I mean, we'll dive into this both teams are kind of starting from scratch. And when you talk about this matchup, OU's defense versus Kansas State's offense, I obviously see, okay, Skylar Thompson is back at quarterback. They have Malik Knowles at wide receiver, a guy who I think is very good, just needs the football a little bit more. But, I mean, K-State's starting basically brand new on the offensive line. Josh Revis is basically the one guy up there that had experience against Oklahoma a season ago. But outside of that, I mean, they're, they're putting in – basically five new guys up front. And for Kansas State, especially when you talk about that offensive system, that's not good news. And then when you look at Oklahoma, I mean, the defensive line depth concerns, well touched on. But Isaiah Thomas seemingly ready to step up into that role. Perry on Winfrey, obviously, there is another role player as well. But I, I think I go into this game with a little bit of optimism for much better statistics when it comes to Grinch. And a scheme, because like I mentioned, I mean, this Kansas State offense is nowhere near what it was a season ago. And then, of course, you factor in the whole COVID concerns. It just could get a little bit ugly. And so I'm very encouraged for what Alex Grinch might be able to put together this weekend. It's just really going to come down to a matter of who is ready to step up into some of those roles that were vacated from his primary leaders a season ago. Absolutely. We're going to see a second game without Ronnie Perkins and without Trajan Bridges and Ramondre Stevenson. Uh, Lincoln Riley touched on this a little bit when it when we were talking uh, with him earlier this week about what he expects in the way of suspensions. And I want to I want to get to that. But I bring that point up because it's been musical chairs on the defensive line for Grinch. 
with Isaiah Thomas moving to defensive tackle after playing defensive end last year. You're really expecting guys like Corey Robertson to be back into the fold, as well as Marcus Stripling, who I absolutely adore as a pass rusher. He has what I thought was the fastest get-off I've seen from a dude weighing 260 pounds in some time. And, of course, we're going to watch LaRon Stokes and see what he's able to provide as well. Nick Benito and John Michael Terry, I think, are going to have big roles in this game, too, as Kansas State likes to go with some big personnel, and they're probably going to try to run the football even more than they pass it, even with that new offensive line. But I would ask you this question. Uh, do you think that this is a prove-it game for Brian Asamoah? Because after the way he played against Missouri State, taking over that Will linebacker position and really playing it in the same way that Kenneth Murray Jr. was allowed to play it last year, do you think this is a prove-it and perhaps a, a star turn for the former tailback in high school? I, I love the question, and I'm glad that you brought it up. I would definitely be concerned if Brian Osamoa isn't stuffed in the stat sheet on Saturday. And I think, like I mentioned, when you talk about Kansas State and that basically brand-new offensive line, then they're bringing in Harry Trotter as basically that veteran running back for K-State. Deuce Vaughn is going to be shifty. He might be a little bit more difficult to handle. But at the same time, I mean, these are guys that Brian Osamoa should be quite clearly better than. And so if he isn't that dude against number one, an offensive system that favors linebacker tackles and number two, a K-State offense that's really starting from scratch in a number of different positions, especially in the box. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm going to be extremely concerned, but it would definitely be something I raise my eyebrow. at. So I hope to see Osamoa really take that next step. I think this is the perfect platform to provide for him. I think when you talk about being at home and all these favorable matchups for him and the fact that he's basically going to be allowed to run around and just simply make plays without having to think too much because Deshaun White is going to be there as sort of the responsibility factor. Yeah, I'm hoping to see Brian Osamoa really have a standout performance on Saturday. And if he doesn't, I mean, when is it going to come, you know? I think we have some time to wait uh, for for him to mature, and I think he's going to get more opportunities. If anything, I would love to see guys like Jamal Morris and Robert Barnes get some run at those linebacker yeah. positions. If no other reason, then I just want to see him play it, right? It's, it's an interesting thought to drop down your strong safeties to be inside linebackers, right, which is what DeLarian Turner-Yell turned out to be. He's basically a, a, a real box safety, which is to say an, a slender linebacker, maybe an overgrown Strong safety. On the other side of the ball, the question is, can Spencer Rattler do it again, right? I talked with some Kansas State folks earlier this week, and I want to get into what you learned from Tim Fitzgerald at Go Powercat about the defensive back situation at Kansas State. Number one, they didn't play very well against an Arkansas State team that had their way with them with over 300 yards passing. And, of course, Rashad Paul and Jonathan Adams both were just working K-State defensive backs. And then you add to that, it's Spencer Rattler back there who has shown the goods, along with Charleston Rambo, Marvin Mims, who is apparently a sub-4-4 guy, along with guys like Austin Stogner. It feels like Oklahoma should be able to put up 50 if they want to. But again, it's a real step up in competition, not just because it's FCS to FBS, but because it is a 1-10 team with a new head coach, uh, to a national champion winning head coach with like five rings who knows how to scheme and they know how to put together coverages that could 
I think, confuse Rattler. So what's your feel on how the offense is going to attack the defense? Yeah, this is what I really am excited to see because I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of what this K-State team as a whole basically is. And you, I'm really interested because you brought up the defensive facts, right? And the basic fact that Oklahoma should have a field day. Here's the thing. Like when I'm watching that K-State versus Arkansas State game live, I'm sitting to myself thinking, these K-State quarterbacks are not getting just flat out burned. Like they're in the mix, but it's just a matter of fact that they were getting beaten competitive plays. And Jonathan Adams Jr. was just making them look silly with some of these incredible contested catches. Like, K-State quarterbacks were there. And I think when you talk about a defensive scheme under new defensive coordinator Joe Klanderman that wants to be quote-unquote aggressive, my big thing here is, okay, if Kansas State cornerbacks, from my perspective, and you could have a, dis- a disagreement here, but from my perspective, if K-State cornerbacks were in position to make plays, and they just didn't make them in those competitive situations, and Joe Klanderman hasn't necessarily revealed the entirety of his quote-unquote aggressive schematics, I mean, what is Oklahoma in here for? I, like, this is, to me, a brand-new slate when it comes to OU's offense versus K-State defense, because you're talking about Spencer Rattler, a quarterback who's going to go brand new into the situation, basically starting clean and running back. The offensive line is back for sure. But, hey, man, Wyatt Huber it, it has a chance to be real special in this game. And I think we'll touch on some of the matchups we're keeping an eye on moving forward. But my big thing here is, okay, if Kansas State saved all of its plans for this Oklahoma game and those cornerbacks were still able to just show at least some sort of resistance even in a losing effort, like, is this a matchup that we're kind of sleeping on? Because Landerman was an in-house hire. He was promoted from the defensive back positioning. And I think for him to be a guy who witnessed what took place last year in Manhattan and to understand what worked and didn't work, even though, hey, man, we talk about Alex Grinch giving up 48 points. I mean, what did Oklahoma end up scoring offensively? 45, something crazy? I mean, this, to me, is just a brand-new game when it comes to K-State defense versus Oklahoma offense, and I'm really wanting to see what this K-State defensive unit actually is because I don't think we saw completely what they're made of in that opener against Arkansas State. They put up 41 against Scotty Hazleton's defense. Uh, Scotty Hazleton, mm-hmm. like Klanderman, came from North Dakota State. Hazleton is now the defensive coordinator at Michigan State. I'm actually really excited to see what they look like because Mel Tucker's the head coach, and they're going to hang their hat on defense. But to Klanderman, I think they're just going to run what they've been running. Like, this is a group of coaches that believe in themselves, right? Like, Courtney Messingham, we thought last year would have been on the hot seat, and then his offense puts up 48 on Oklahoma, which in 2019 – is still kind of a feat, right? It's not the feat that it might have been in 2019, but let's not pretend that Iowa State didn't put up 41 or that LSU didn't put up 63. However, I think you make a point in that everybody's turning over their personnel. So I think that the coaches know what they're looking at, but do the players know what they're looking at? Do they understand what Oklahoma wants to do offensively? And does Oklahoma understand what Kansas State wants to do defensively? Because I think the same tenets of Kansas State football that were in place in the Bill Schneider era still apply in the Chris Kleiman era, which is to say we're not going to beat ourselves. We're not going to pick up a bunch of penalties. 
we're going to tackle, we're going to wrap up, and we're going to put you on the ground. And if we're able to do that, we get you in the third and long situations, we like our chances there. And on the money downs, that's where I think Kansas State has a chance to stay in this game. Because if you're forcing Rattler to throw the ball, great, right? I mean, that's what you were going to want to do. Because if you let Oklahoma run the ball, they're going to throw it anywhere they want to, whenever they want to. The best you can hope for is to be able to guess accurately whether or not it's a run or pass situation. On third and short, you don't know what you're going to get. And in the age where we're seeing more coaches depend on the analytics of what they should be doing on fourth down, depending on down and distance and how close you are to your own goal line, I would not put it past a Lincoln Riley to go for it on fourths in some instances. So again, you just want to get them in third and long situations, which means you got to stuff the run, which means you probably have to devote one more body to the box than you might normally just to be sure that you get one-on-one matchups. Because if you think that the K-State D-backs were there and Klanderman and his uh, secondary coach agree with you, I like that matchup then. I'm going to put my upperclassmen on the true freshman in Marvin Mims and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to take him away. I'm going to take him away. I'm going to try to take Charleston Rambo away and I'm going to make you beat me with your H-back and your tight end. I'm just, that's what I would choose to do. Now, are any of these great choices? No, because it's it's an Oklahoma offense. It's a Lincoln Riley offense. But if it can be put together, it can be picked apart. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, and I think when you bring up, okay, taking the run away versus taking the pass away, something that I'm really keeping my eye on and something I wrote down in kind of my Big 12 recap that I've been doing, I was very interested in the first edition of Joe Klanderman's defensive system, seeing a little bit more of linebackers lined up in the A-gaps for K-State against Arkansas State. That wasn't necessarily something that I remember them doing a ton last year, specifically against Oklahoma, but that is definitely a lineup that can confuse some quarterbacks and offensive linemen. And so if you're Spencer Rattler or if you're Oklahoma's running backs and you see those guys lined up in the A-gaps a little bit more frequently, maybe that's something that these guys have to adjust to. And so when you talk about how they're going to go about trying to shut down some sort of aspect of Lincoln Riley's offense, I want to see what and how Oklahoma's offense handles the potential for those linebackers to not only be lined up in the A-gaps, but come straight downhill and try to be disruptive. Because again, K-State's only going to have the opportunity to win this football game if that defense finds some way to create some sort of mismatch or create some sort of mistake. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. And for me, that's one way to kind of further your point. How are you going to take it away? Throw some sort of unique schematic lineup like linebackers in the A-gaps. I want to pivot to the suspensions because I know that you and I have been talking about these things for some time but to underscore for the folks that haven't been following it forever Ramondre Stevenson Ronnie Perkins and Trajan Bridges were suspended last year for what was reported to be a positive drug test that is related to marijuana the rule anybody would tell you is archaic and Riley used those words or that word, archaic, when it comes to enforcing it and what the penalty is, which is severe, right? It's 50% of the next season or upcoming competitions, right? So for a 12-game season, six games. They served a suspension in the Peach Bowl, which you could make an argument. If they're playing in it, maybe it's a different outcome. I would not make that argument, but that's me. And in a 10-game season, right, half of that would be five, and then 
we're going to go with four because they already did the one for the Peach Bowl. So Riley was asked earlier this week if he expected to get Ronnie Perkins or Trajan Bridges or Ramondre Stevenson back before the Texas game. And he said he did not know and that at this point, he's no longer interested in whether or not their suspensions get reduced. He's more interested in seeing the rule changed because I think also he made a good point here. Only a handful of teams get tested at all in a year because you only get tested in bowl preparation and there's not that many bowl games that people would test for. Peach Bowl, college football playoff makes a lot of sense there. So I'm going to ask you, Colin, how do you feel about the suspensions and do you think that Riley is right to just say we're going to continue to work as if those guys can't help us during games, but obviously are able to help us in practice. Well, it's certainly the right approach here from Lincoln Riley, but it's complete BS on the account of the NCAA. And I'm glad that Riley is seeing this from a larger perspective because it's, it's a rule that is just awful. I mean, I don't understand why when you talk about, okay, the use of marijuana or whatever, how, how in this day and age can we truly consider that to be some sort of major infraction? I, I just don't get it. And so I could go on and on on that account. But for Riley, I mean, what are you going to do? I, I really don't know at this point how you can sit here and approach a situation like that because the NCAA has just gone about this whole situation of 2020 without much true involvement. I mean, they just kind of thrown something at the fire and seen what happens. But when it comes to stuff like this, I mean, it's clear that this is very low on their totem pole. So I'm glad that Riley's saying, you know what, we're going to have to cut our losses here. But at the same time, we hope to see this never happen again, not only to our players, but to anyone of the like. And so, look, man, I, we really don't know what's going to happen for these guys. I, I hope just for their sake that they are able to get back on the field very soon. I don't know that that's going to happen, but at the same time, I do hope that this is a learning experience for the NCAA, and at some point they say, hey, maybe that was a misstep, and as a result, we get guys in a better position moving forward to where something like this doesn't completely throw their college career off the tracks. I wanted to bring up in this segment also where we are in relation to players, player-athlete rights, and social issues because this has been a thing with Kansas State and we're going to see it be a thing with Oklahoma. Kansas State had its unity game against Arkansas State where players wore BLM patches and they played lift every voice and sing during the pregame which is known as the Black National Anthem. It's a really fantastic song and I would encourage everyone to learn the lyrics because I think first and second verse in particular are pretty damn good. Kansas State got backlash from its season ticket holders, uh, and in a letter-writing campaign, people said that they were canceling their season tickets because BLM was on the shoulder pads of their players and because they did not feel that the support of an organization is what they signed up for, to which Gene Taylor, the athletic director at Kansas State, made pains to say, hey, look, we're not supporting any organization. We're, we are supporting our players who are saying that they are in pain. And I don't think that that is, that's a hard thing to do, to stand behind your players. It's not a hard thing to call out racist. It's also not the easiest thing to pick fights with your family about some issues in which they might be awful people, but they also support the team that you like. 
this week, we're going to probably see Oklahoma wear a black stripe down the middle of its white helmet, which to me signifies Rough Rider theme look for them, right? And that black stripe is also going to be a part of their unity game. Do you think that putting the black stripe is a great compromise as opposed to putting a BLM patch on the jerseys? Do you think that fans are going to react the way that you and I might react, which is to say, cool, we get to stand with the players, we get to support them on this, or do you think we could see something similar like what we saw at Kansas State? I think there's going to be both ends of the seesaw here. I mean, obviously there's a spectrum to any of these things. But I I appreciate the fact that Oklahoma is taking this step. And if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look, but there's there's like a unity sticker on the back of those helmets. Yes, you're right. I I mean, look, I'm all for being very vocal about, number one, the support of these players, and number two, the support of the idea of, hey, Black Lives Matter. But I do also expect plenty of backlash to match some of the support that's found in the fan base. And I think anyone that has observed, I don't know, anything that's going on would kind of expect something similar. So I applaud OU's administration for doing something like this. I'm glad that they're still going through it, especially when their opponent faced backlash not too long ago. So we'll see how this thing goes. But at the same time, if this is what they feel is right, then all all forces ahead. And I think this is definitely the right move, and I'm glad that they're doing it. I always am floored by just how far Lincoln Riley is willing to go uh, in a place where I know that he does not always have the great support that I would want to see him get on these issues from their unity campaign themselves. They were all black. They went into their courtyard. He gave a speech. It's not something I'm Mm -hmm. used to seeing a college football coach do. Uh, He also was at the forefront of saying, no, my players need to be heard on this and I will support them in being heard on this. And he he threw down, he he threw down a marker. He said, anything that turns violent, no, we're not going to, I'm not going to allow that. But we've also seen Justin Broyles lead protest in Oklahoma City, and we've seen his players continue to be vocal about it. Creed Humphrey among them who has been vocal about it. So I'm interested to see how this goes because I think most people know where I sit on these issues. They're very dear to me, and being able to talk about them with some level of clarity is always difficult, and I appreciate Mm -hmm. folks for hearing and then trying to be proactive. All right, so – From there, I want to go to individual matchups as we see them being interesting in this Oklahoma versus Kansas State game. You have already identified one I think that a good football person is going to identify as well. Uh, Go ahead, Colin. Tell me what you think the most interesting matchup is for OU Kansas State. Yeah, for me, man, it's Wyatt Huber, the standout defensive end for Kansas State against whoever the hell is playing left tackle for OU. I mean, obviously, last week or two weeks ago, it was Adrian Ely sliding over from right to left. Eric Swenson has the ability to get there. Stacey Wilkins could be back. But, I mean, true freshman Anton Harrison was slated to start that position. And if he is back with no prior game experience, Going up against Wyatt Hubert, one of, if not the best defensive end in the Big 12, 
that's a big deal for me, man. Like Hubert, he is an absolute force. He's continued to build himself up to look like an NFL guy. And Harrison, while he has the frame already of a D1 left tackle, doesn't have the experience right now. And I think we don't have him penciled in to start because obviously there are several options. But at the same time, no matter if it's him or any of the other candidates to play left tackle, you probably would feel best if it's Adrian Ely. But at the same time, I think Adrian Ely would probably be at his best if he's over on the right side. So I'm keying in on the blind side versus Wyatt Hubert. I feel like if Kansas State's coaching staff wants to have a good shot at this game, they're going to just sit Hubert over whoever is over there on the left tackle position. And they're going to see where this thing goes. But if it doesn't work out and Oklahoma's left tackle play is similar to what it got from a season ago, it's going to be a long day over there. And Spencer Rattler's going to have to adjust quickly. I think you nailed it, man, because uh, any true freshman in that position, I don't care how talented you are, I, I feel like it's, an, it's a huge amount of pressure, especially since Wyatt has to think now, hey, I got Oklahoma's number. Like, he was the dude that walked into the pregame press conference last year and said, yeah, we know who they are. We know what they did to us the year before in Norman. I didn't forget. I don't see why we can't whip their ass. And what did they do? It went and whipped their ass. Like, Kalen, uh, Jalen 100% played a great game, but also what like Wyatt, what getting in his face, right? And if you tell me that Wyatt gets to go against a true freshman tackle, he's going to be like, oh, it's Christmas. That's how I would feel at least. So I'm being interested. I want to know if they're going to send running backs over to Chip. I don't see Beatonbo trying to move Adrian Ely to left tackle, though. I think he really does like to have his guys play the position that they play. So much so that I'm pulling my hair out going, why is it Bray Walker getting looks at tackling? It might just be because he's not that good at tackle, or maybe he's better at guard. But knowing that Stacey Wilkins is there, you, you might want to see him get some run. We know that Eric Swenson is on the depth chart backing up Adrian Ely, but he has some some experience at left tackle. He just wasn't very good at it last year. So, like, if you are able to consistently beat up that left tackle and get to the quarterback, yeah, you could turn the tide. I mean, I'll remember even the South Dakota game. Eric Swenson was getting his butt kicked, man. Like, and I get that. I Two things on that, right? Number one, no FCS defensive end should be getting the better of a left tackle at Oklahoma like that, except he's also an All-American Right? Like, he was, he's, he's one of the yeah. best FCS defensive ends in the country. So it was kind of an unfair comparison there. But then I look at, at Wyatt, who has an opportunity to be defensive player of the year. He's that good. I'm interested to see it. I, I, I really want to see this because I've been very vocal all uh, preseason and all offseason. Like, have they fixed the left tackle issue yet? Because, like, Swenson's still there, and you moved the guard over to take that spot because he was so bad. So you need... Walker to be good, you need you need Stacey Wilkins to be good. And then the fact that Anton Harrison is listed as a starting tackle tells me he's either that good or they're really that bad. And you don't get to tell against Missouri State because, as we pointed out, they're not very good. For me, I want to really see Spencer Rattler versus defensive tackle. And let me unpack that. I think... If I'm Lincoln Riley, and I know what Kansas State likes to do, and I know how I was able to be, uh, beat them, I'm probably going to put in run-pass option, and I'm probably going to put in a couple of zone reads to leave that defensive tackle to read, 
right? I want to know if that defensive tackle knows his keys. Because if he doesn't, I have an opportunity to put the ball into the halfback stomach and let him go at the middle of your defense and then get you on the back foot, go fast, and go score. And if Rattler is the runner that many people think he is, it's easy, right? You're re- if that dude crashes down, go. And if you go and you get down, great. I understand you don't want to get the dude hurt, but it's also football, and Riley's been the first person to say, you want a guy back there who's not a statue. You need a guy that can get you out of bad situations. You need a guy whose legs the defense has to respect because it's just one more thing for them to think about, and it's one more thing to add to your arsenal, whether it be bootleg play action that you can get into, whether it be sprint stuff you can get into, or whether it's just straight-up quarterback power or quarterback counter, which is a thing that they did with Jalen Hurts last year. I understand that's a reach for some people, but, I mean, I'm not I'm not looking to give you something that I thought was boring, like, you know, I really like to see Charleston Ramble against these defense backs. We, we kind of touched on it, but... Outside of left tackle, right, I guess the next thing would be the tailbacks versus the linebackers, but that's more about the offensive line, and you get what I'm saying with this, right? It's just I want to see more from Rattler. I want to see if Riley trusts him as much as, quite frankly, I think he would trust Tanner Mordecai. Like, there's a great discussion to be had about who's the more athletic quarterback, Tanner Mordecai or Spencer Rattler, because if I look at the player athletic, uh, athletic index by tracking football, you'll see that the two most athletic players on the team are Marcus Hicks at number one and Tanner Mordecai at number two. And anybody that's seen that dude down at Waco Midway knows he can move. So I, I just, would you trust Mordecai to do the same things that I'm asking Rattler to do? Yes, but vice versa? I don't know that we have an answer for that. I would like to get an answer versus Kansas State. I like that one. I like that one a lot, and I'll throw another one at okay. you. How about, how about, Oklahoma's nickelback, Brennan Radley-Hiles, and or Deshaun White at linebacker, because I have to assume Austin is going to fly all over, versus K-State's tight end duo of Briley Moore, who went bananas in the opener, and Nick Lenners, who is a mountain of a man. I don't know if you've seen Nick Lenners in person or not. He's got the but he's zero, five, right? Dude, he's huge. Yeah. He's 6'5", 252 pounds. I mean, he's Stogner 2.0, basically, just not as good in the passing game. I mean, K-State, we talk about it a lot. The offensive system warrants action for the tight ends or fullbacks. And with Briley Moore being a more athletic presence at around 6'3", 6'4", and then Leonard's being that big physical presence at 6'5", 250, I mean, is this a true opportunity for us to really evaluate how Brennan Radley-Hiles is going to step up against some of these mismatches and or how some of these linebackers for Oklahoma are going to do this year in coverage when they're clearly outdone from a physicality standpoint. I'm kind of keen on that one as well. I think it's a good point. I would also add here, Briley Moore is one of the 95 FCS transfers that we have seen so far this season with a bunch of these guys going to FBS programs. Uh, Some like Jabril Pox, who we know about, going from North Dakota State to LSU. We've seen a Harvard transfer to LSU, we've seen Riley Moore go from, I believe it was Northern Iowa, to K-State, and they immediately put him in position to make an impact on their offense. And I think, you know, whether or not Skylar Thompson is able to get along with him in the way that he was, at least in the first half against Arkansas State, is going to be a big part of this as well. I want to see if Skylar Thompson still has his legs, because that seemed to be an issue for him in the second half against Arkansas State. Kleiman had said in the post-game presser that he pulled Kleiman in the middle of the second half because he thought that they 
were not taking advantage of some things that were open to them in the quarterback run game, which I thought was interesting because Skylar Thompson is that dude, right? You, you would like to see him do as much passing as throwing because that's just who he is. So we'll see if they have that ready to go as well. Okay. Hey, man, uh, can I say something real quick yeah, too sure. on that? Sure. I, I, you talk about being pulled. I, I'm going to say something. Uh, I'm going to give a bold prediction here. And I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to say that if K State goes down early, like let's say two touchdowns or something, and it's clear the offense is sputtering, I, I think K State should pull. Hmm. And here's why: it's not really a shot at Skylar Thompson because I know a lot of K State fans are sending shots at him as it is. I know a lot of people were not pleased with what he showed in Week One. But I think I think K State's got a dude at backup, and he's a true freshman. Okay, I don't know RJ how much you watched Will Howard coming out of Pennsylvania, but this kid stepped in okay in Week One for Skyler in a moment, and he had an absolute dime of a throw. And the kid is already six foot four, two hundred and like eighteen pounds. I, I know that he's a true freshman, but it's clear to me that Howard is going to be a better thrower of the football and Thompson already at this stage. And so my take here is like, if you're really not happy with what Skylar Thompson's providing, why not give the true freshman a shot? Especially if you think he's got better arm talent. I'm just sitting here saying, Hey, Kleiman, if you really are sputtering offensively, but you think your defense is putting enough to stay in the football game, let's see what the guy that can actually throw a football does, even if he's not necessarily experienced from a D1 standpoint. It's an interesting discussion because since Trevor Lawrence, you really can't make an argument for not throwing the younger guy in there because, one, you're going to get more out of him for longer, and, two, (laughs) we know that most of the freshmen come in ready to play in a way that they didn't even 10 years ago. You know, we see that, like, last year with Sam Howell, who was absolutely outstanding. Jaden Daniels, absolutely outstanding. Bo Nix wasn't great, still beat Oregon, who won the Rose Bowl in the Pac-12, and beat a really great Alabama team, among other things. So I think I think you're on to something there. If Skylar Thompson doesn't have it to go, go ahead, throw Will Howard in there, especially against an Oklahoma because it's one of the two best teams that you're going to face all, all year, and right now it's the number three th- team in the country. <sighs> Which sounds weird to say. Like, I, I, okay, I, I got I to gotta get at this. I got to get at this. There is no reason on earth for Oklahoma to be number three in the country in a regular damn year, right? And there's certainly no reason for them to be number three in the country unless there's no Big Ten uh, conference that's playing. And I just, the AP rankings are just wonk. They're usually the rankings that I can depend on the most. And then I have to depend on the college football playoff rankings, which I hate. Like, I will never get over a 10-2 Army team being left off the top 25 in 2018. It just bothers me. But among that, right, I'm looking, I'm going, okay, what are we doing? To which Ralph Russo, who runs the poll, but his bosses make decisions on what gets included and what doesn't, they removed the Big Ten and the Pac-12 from the preseason rankings once plays got started. Then when we got word last week that the Big Ten would return to play on October 24th, he said, you're not going to include those teams until they're a month away from their competition. So that means this Sunday, we expect to see the Big Ten included in the top 25 again as we had so much moving and shaking. 
And I look at this Oklahoma team, and I see them win a number three next to their name, and I'm going, what are we doing? Because I can't make this team better than number seven right now in my head. I can't do it. You know, when I know that Alabama's there, when I know that Georgia's there, when I know that Florida's there, when I know that Auburn was at least able to beat up on a couple of teams that nobody really thought that Oklahoma could beat. I mean, think about that. If Oklahoma played Alabama next year, People are going to pick Alabama for good reason, even with the injuries. If Oklahoma played Oregon, we already know that people would have expected Oregon to win that game because Oregon was supposed to make the playoff, and if they didn't, it was supposed to be Utah. You know, like if Utah didn't get the two losses, one being the Pac-12 championship, there you go. So I I really got a hard time with this, and yet, what's there to say? You know, like the, the AP voters, I think there's 60 of them, think that Oklahoma's the third best team in the country. And I'm going, ugh, okay. I guess that's who we are now with 76 teams that are eligible for being voted into the top 25. What's your take on them in this number three ranking? I call it COVID inflation. (laughs) There's no way in hell that's their actual price. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm with you here. Oklahoma is Definitely not the number three team in the country right now at this stage. I could see them getting into that conversation more from a dominoes falling perspective. Obviously, we have to see the college football schedule pan out. And as we well know, Oklahoma usually benefits from a couple late losses and gets into a riot around that tier. But at the same time, I think to say that they're the number three team in the country, when you haven't even seen Spencer Rattler start this four-game stretch that he's about to go into, a little bit too much. I'm going to go ahead and say it's a little bit too much, but at the same time, we won't really see probably what this whole team is truly made of until they get into that gauntlet of Iowa State, Texas, TCU. So to say, for me, number three team in the country, Oklahoma, it's a little much, but it's the given circumstances with COVID-19 and things like that. No, man, like if I'm Texas, I'm going, what, wait, wait, what? You know, like... Have you seen what we return? Have you seen what we did to UTEP? Like, what are we doing? We're, we're ranking Lincoln Riley is what we're doing. That's that's all I can come yep. up with. We're ranking Lincoln Riley as one of the four best teams in the country on general damn principle at this point. And, you know, this is also getting into a segment that just kind of popped into my head and popped in my email, actually. And I want to get to this uh, after we talk about the games that we're most excited about. But, like, Bet AG just came out with, the coaches that they most likely think are getting the best odds to get fired first among the conference. And I can't wait to go over those with you, but let's start with, wow. Yeah, I know. Right. I <laughs> know. Right. In a, in a year when we thought nobody would get fired. Southern Miss was like, damn, so, bet, bet. Watch us show Jay hops in the door. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> it was like, bet. Okay, cool. Somebody just won their coaching pool. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> what are the games that you're most excited for this weekend? Yeah, man, I've got a couple. I'll, I'll give my top three here. Anyone who knows me well knows this, and anyone who doesn't know this, here you go. I will reveal my college football allegiance. I grew up a big fan of the Florida Gators, and they are officially taking the field this weekend against Ole Miss. And it's a big deal for me because, look, just from a general perspective, Ole Miss is not the same opponent as Florida. Like, this is a clear disadvantage from a matchup perspective but at the same time florida hit the transfer portal hard the gators have also been kind of conspicuous and mysterious when it comes to what their covid situation is 
And so I want to go into this game, and I want to actually get a sense of what Florida is going to bring to the table this year. Because, look, I think everyone across college football media has kind of had Florida as the sexy pick to make the playoff. But as someone who has literally watched them for years upon years, I know damn well how much heartbreak this team can provide. And with them bringing in so many new faces on both sides of the ball, I want to see what this team's made of. And I want to see what Dan Mullen is going to do to take that next step. So I've got my eye on that one as the SEC starts up. I think in the Big 12, these were the two teams that I was really high on going into the year. We haven't really seen what they're actually consisting of. I mean, Iowa State and TCU playing each other is a big deal for me. I want to see if the Horned Frogs are for real. Big news dropping with Max Duggan available to play. He's going to come out of the bullpen probably as Matthew Downing takes the starting job at quarterback. But if TCU can go into this game against Iowa State and beat the Cyclones, who a lot of people had as kind of that sleeper contender in the Big 12, and they can beat Iowa State with specifically the run game, that's going to speak a lot to me because I don't doubt TCU's defense. I know they have dudes at wide receiver and tight end. But if these running backs with Zach Evans and the other younger guys who are now going to have to step up can carry the load and make sure that TCU is more of a ground and pound offensive system this year, I'm going to keep rolling with the TCU hype train. And I've still got them as the bandwagon leader to potentially make some serious upsets created within the conference. And then for me, the game that nobody is talking about, but I am so excited to see, man, I mentioned it to you in the pre-show. Army and Cincinnati are playing this weekend in a ranked matchup, and I feel like nobody is talking about it. Like, that's a huge deal, especially because some people went as far to put Cincinnati in the playoff. Okay, I'll say it again. They have Cincinnati in the playoff, and they're going to play Army, a team that gives everyone a scare. I'm looking at those three games, and I'm really excited to watch them this weekend. I mean, those same people put Oklahoma State in the playoff. So, like, I mean, <laughs> like, I, I – there, I always get smoke from people who are saying, you talk about rankings in September. I love talking about rankings, all right? If you don't like talking about rankings, this is not going to be the show for you. I love talking about rankings at any point. It's one of my favorite segments to do. But to your point, like, Cincinnati versus Army, that's, that's, that's a show-your-cards game, man. Like, Army has to win it to have any chance of us even talking about them at all the remainder of this season. Since he has to win it for the Americans' reputation and for their own, like, Quite honestly, we don't we don't give a damn about you beating up on Austin P. Nobody does, right? And Luke Fickle, who has built his program and reputation's pro, uh, reputation on being hard-nosed, physical, we play defense, we are going to stack up against the run, and we're not going to let you do that, gets to see what that looks like against West Point. And I've been a Marcus Freeman truther. Like, between Marcus Freeman and Buki, I bought all the stock, right? I believe that Marcus Freeman is the next up-and-coming head coach slash defense coordinator. I think he's just waiting on the right move, perhaps even at Ohio State because he used to play there. But Freeman has done nothing but put together outstanding defenses and really been the backbone of that program. This is also a group of folks that, uh, I love this story, Luke Fickle gets his kid into an Iowa State satellite camp that's taking place in Ohio. And he shows up with a couple of his players, because he can't bring assistance and whatnot, and they just stand there. He's there as a parent, but they're standing there in sense of gear, 
watching the Iowa State guys put the kids through their paces and laying down a marker going, nope, you're not going to come into, into Cincinnati. You're not going to come into Ohio and get our kids anymore, Matt Campbell. This is who we are. And I love that. So I'm with you. I'm excited to see what the outcome of that game is, even if I'm not necessarily going to have my eyes on it. I'm interested to see Pittsburgh versus Louisville because I think that Kenny Pickett is the best quarterback nobody's talking about, and he gets an opportunity to show it against the Louisville team that, quite honestly, I thought was going to be 2-0 heading into this game. But Malik Cunningham has passed for over 300 yards on average. Javian Hawkins is still going for over 100 yards on average. They did not look good, look good defensively against Miami. Some of that, I think, is De'Aaron King, who went for over 300 yards. So they've shown that they can run it for 300. They've shown that they can pass for 300. They get to show whether or not they're a complete football team once again against Florida State, Miami, that is. And then an uncharacteristically bad defensive display by Brian Brown and that Louisville defense. Now they get an opportunity to try to correct that against a quarterback that is not similarly talented, but certainly can throw the ball all around the yard and has a true freshman that is out there just catching TD passes like it's his job, all right? So I'm I, I'm really excited about that one. I also am excited about this Texas Christian game versus Iowa State, but for the opposite reason. This is a nail game for Iowa State. And by that, I mean, if, if you lose this, that's your coffin nail. That's it. We're not talking about Iowa State as being any good for the rest of the year. You have to win this game. And for Texas Christian, you got to win this game too. But do you have to win it in the way that Iowa State has to? No, because you didn't lose to Louisiana Lafayette. You would have taken that L to SMU. I'm, I'm going to say that. And seeing as that game has not been rescheduled just yet, I'd say that Texas Christian is dodging Southern Methodist in a year in which Southern Methodist is once again going to be very good. You're also running out of Matthew Downing. And if Iowa State can't care, take care of redshirt sophomore Matthew Downey, Iowa State can't take care of what? Finishing that whole pizza? I mean, like, I just, I, I, I don't see Matthew Downey as a threat here. This is a game in which I'm going, Zach Evans needs to get 30 touches, period. Like, I know you want to distribute the ball to Tay Barber, distribute the ball to J.D. Spielman. I get that. But you need to be able to run the ball and play defense. Because if you can keep Brock Purdy off the field, they're not going to be able to stop you from running the ball because that's not what Iowa State is built to do. They're built to stop you from your mid-range game, from your quick game, and from the deep ball. They're not built to just line up and stop a guy like Zach Evans. I also think it could be a Zach Evans coming out party because I also have all the stock in that kid. It's just can he keep himself together? And so far, he has been able to do that. And then I was looking up and down the roster of games for this weekend, and yes, we keep talking about the SEC I want to see Kentucky and Auburn, Dell City stand up. You got a dude that I think is a good enough quarterback at Terry Wilson to go get a win against Auburn and Bo Nix. But mm -hmm. I'm interested in that Florida and Mississippi game just because I want to see if Lane Kiffin breaks his own rule. Lane Kiffin employed two quarterbacks at USC. He got fired that year. Okay, He's thought about doing it this year because John Rice Plumley is that good with his legs and Matt Kroll is that good with his arm. Conventional wisdom is you go with the guy that can throw the football because that's what you need a quarterback to do. You need him to throw the football. But John Rice Plumley <laughs> is so fast and so good in the open field that you might want to just get him some looks in there. So I don't know that it's going to be a two-quarterback system, but I could see John Rice Plumley getting five to seven snaps next to Jerry and Ely and trying to run a little rich rod out there with a little, you know, basketball on grass, a little single-wing concept. But I think you got to go with the dude that's going to be able to distribute the ball to your playmakers in a game where you need to score points because we know that Dan Mullen and Kyle Trask are going to put up their share of points. 
and against Ty Grantham's defense where he's, he's willing to gamble. You know, that man's going to blitz more often than he's going to stay home. You're going to have shots to really hit guys on hot routes and really pick them apart in places where they just aren't able to get to your quarterback. So I'm interested to see how that goes as well. I wanted to see Sean Robinson in Eli Drinkwitz's offense because I think it can work, but not against Alabama. You know, and, and on it goes. But, like, if anything, Texas needs to beat Texas Tech by 20 just so they can keep their reputation and we can keep that OU Texas game intact. And I'm going to keep my eyes on that. So those are the games that I'm looking forward to. I want to get to this list, though, like with the time that we got left. Because I always thought that this was interesting when we talk about who's going to get fired first. So I'm going to give you the best odds for who's going to get fired, right? I'm already going to just pad this by saying Lincoln Riley's getting the worst odds to be fired first in the Big 12, 28, 28 to 1. I, I, I think that's easy money if you, could, if you could take that bet, but you can't. Tom Herman's getting 8 to 5. What? I thought Chris Del Conte was like, no. He's gonna be our he's gonna be our head coach. And especially in this year, you know, but he turned over both coordinators. He turned over half the staff. He needs to he needs to get wins this year. He can't afford to go eight and five. And I thought it was poetic that his his odds are eight and five, right? And then there's Matt Wells, which I didn't think was on the table at five and two, Neil Brown at three and one, and then Les Miles at six to one. Yo, man, of those four, who would you put your money on? I put my money on Les Miles, man. I, I, Santa Claus did it to I him, really, Man, I do. Hey, let me tell you something. I, like, Kansas doesn't like sticking with a head coach for very long. I don't know what it is, but like at the two- or three-year mark, they just start getting those fire engines turning. And I, I, I think Neil Brown is definitely going to be around for a while at West Virginia. I think he's a really good football coach. That team's just not good. I think Matt Wells is going to have a shot or two at Texas Tech because I think they like him a lot. And I would bet that Tom Herman saved his life by landing Quinn Ewers, but that's been a personal take of mine for a while. So if I'm thinking anybody in the Big 12 right now, it would have to be Les Miles. That being said, I don't know if anyone's getting cleaned out this year. I think it's probably another year before you see some movement in the Big 12 from a coaching perspective, but that's who I would place my money on if you're forcing me to put some sort of bet down. Yo, man, if Les Miles gets fired, you know who else has to get fired? Jeff Long. Like, you're not going to be able to stick around with this. Jeff Long is also the dude that gave Brett Bielema an extension to Arkansas because he beat an 8-5 Texas. And that that has ended up in litigation, right? Like, Brett Bielema is like, pay me my money. And the Razorback Foundation is like, no, (laughs) you took another job. And then you got the Mad Hatter in Kansas talking about let me build something. Nah, man, this ain't LSU where you could just get these dudes. Like, the thing about LSU that gets lost is these dudes don't have anywhere else to go, right? Like, Kansas, you got to sell people on Kansas. Or you got to just be the dude that nobody was looking at. You know, like, I can't, I can't believe the story is true, but it's hearing Brent Venables tell it that just Hammonds are home to me. There was a dude playing at Kansas, right? With the last name Simmons. His little brother's dude named Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah was a three-star dude. Didn't have a bunch of high major offers, but he did not want to go to Kansas, but it was on the table. Brent Venable sees the film and says, holy crap, gets to Kansas and sees that Isaiah Simmons is every bit of six foot four, 230 pounds. and says, sweet, I can, I can get him. Right on, and he hugged him, and he brought him. He wasn't six four, or he wasn't six four, and he wasn't three hundred thirty pounds yet. 
You get my point here. Brent Venable saw something mm. he could work with. But that's the kind of guy that would have fallen into Kansas's lap if Brent Venables wasn't doing his job, right? And that's just not going to happen with Les Miles. You're not going to get these dudes at Kansas, especially after he saw Coastal Carolina hand you your head. So, like, I can get on board with Les Miles being the dude, being the first to go out of this group because I think, I think Neil Brown has actually built himself a solid reputation in West Virginia in a little amount of time. I also think that, you know, if Mike Gundy, if, if Mike Holder had the money to fire Mike Gundy over the summer, that would have been done, right? Instead, he was able to extract a million bucks and get him to end that rollover clause of five-year contract to just the next four years, which means that Gundy would probably get to retire about the same time that uh, Gunner, his son, would graduate from Oklahoma State. So that's in there. A um, couple others that I wanted to mention across the conferences, Dino Babers, getting the best odds in the ACC to go first at 8-5. to five. And then in mm-hmm. the Big Ten, Lovey Smith at 2-1. to one. My God, ouch. Scott Frost, 9-4. to four. Jim Harbaugh, 5-1. to one. And then the SEC, Will Muschamp's getting 2-1. to one. Derek Mason getting 9-4. to four. Jeremy Pruitt getting 3-1. to one. So of those dudes that I just mentioned, I'm going to throw Lovey Smith out. Which one of those guys do you think is more likely to get fired? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going Lovey Smith hard, man. I don't right. really know how he still has that job. But I would go with he Babers here, man. He got a bowl eligible next year. He got a bowl eligible, right? Okay. He but like, let, let me tell you something, man. That <laughs> Illinois job, he ain't, he ain't doing too hot. I mean, like, there, yes, there's bright spots. But my man could be easily doing much better because the whole NFL rep. But, like, look, okay. <laughs> I feel bad for Dino, but anyone who listens to the Barton and Bud show knows kind of the point that's been made on him. And I, I would encourage anyone to go check that out as well. Like Barton Simmons and Bud Elliott kind of touched on it. Like Dino, Dino inherited some very good talent at Syracuse early on. And ever since then, like it's just been a further and further waiting period until he actually has to basically win at Syracuse. Like, he had Dungey when he first stepped into the job, and then that upset win over Clemson, if I remember correctly, was like the springboard for him. Like, oh, boom, like he's got Syracuse on lock. Like, they're going to be a good football team. And then ever since then, it's just like the clock has been ticking down until time is up. They actually have to figure out how the hell you win at Syracuse University. And the flat-out point here is that you don't. And I think DeVito, his quarterback, not necessarily being that good. Syracuse could have one of the worst defenses this year in all college football. And Dino's like a defensive guy. I would put my money on Babers to be out of the job here pretty soon. And I feel bad for him because it's it's not really his fault. It's more the job. But at the end of the day, man, you got to sign on what you're signing up for. Yeah, man. Uh, and, and because these jobs pay such money, I could, you know, they're paychecks, right? It's like, you're going to pay me what to do what? Cool. I'll 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 take your five million annually. Not, no, I'll take your two million annually to uh, you know catch nine losses each year. <laughs> it's like <laughs> sure, great. I'll take that money. This is great. And you know they had their heir apparent Sterling Gilbert right there. So it's just it's fine. Whatever. Um, that's Colin Kennedy. Follow him on the Twitters at c kennedy two four seven. That is at c kennedy two four seven. I have deleted my Twitter account. If you have not actually subscribed to the VIP board at OUinsider.com, I would encourage you to do so. 
stays packed with notes, not just from Brandon Drum, who does not sleep, but from Colin Kennedy and from our national writers, guys like Steve Wiltfong, Brandon Huffman, dudes with their finger on the pulse of recruiting if you are that kind of nut, and I am certainly that kind of nut. Uh, We will talk to you guys next week. Deuces.